morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Cecile Alpel-Leroux. And Cecile, you probably remember her from times past on the show. Cecile is the Vice President of Product Innovation at Ultimate Software, which is a fancy way of saying she's the smarts behind the amazing company. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to let Cecile introduce herself a little bit, and then we'll get into the conversation. Good morning, Cecile. Good morning, John. It's great to talk with you again and, uh, and to be part of the, of the show. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about the smarts. I think the, the key to leadership in general is to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and that bring totally different perspectives. And that it's actually potentially something that we're going to talk about a little bit later today. But uh, um, as I think you may remember, I started out as an anthropologist. A cultural anthropologist after doing some archaeology, and I, I found my way in, uh, in an odd and circuitous manner into the world of HR technology um, that I'm absolutely passionate about. So, um, again, I'm delighted to be here to talk about, uh, uh, about some of the things you're going to be asking. Good, good. So, so Ultimate Software and Kronos merged recently, and... Yeah. My sense is that your life got really interesting. It had been interesting all along, but it got really interesting, ma'am. So, 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 what's going on? So, so it it has been a, a fascinating uh, experience and and really a journey of a, a, a tale of two cultures coming together. Um, I think that there's no there's no real mystery about the fact that mergers uh, can be, can be an, an incredible challenge and that they also have, uh, at, at times, a pretty, a, a pretty high failure rate. And so one of the things that, um, that our organizations were really, really adamant about, and by the way, we still don't have a new company name. That should be coming in the next, uh, uh, the, the combined new uh, branding, logo, name, et cetera, is coming in the next month. Uh, or two. Uh, there's some rumblings that are that are already happening. There are apparently lots of rumors as well. Um, but uh, things we were very intentional about was to uh, do a lot of, of, of listening. And there was um, a, a fair bit of separation for the first uh, in the first couple of months. Um, but things have have really started to, to gel as we bring these two cultures and, and really nearly equally sized organizations together. Um, and when I say a tale of two cultures, although both Kronos and Ultimate are, are known to have uh, people-centered, uh, a, a, a sort of a people-centered ethos, um, there, is, there are certainly differences in how that plays out. Um, and so we've really been, uh, be besides learning a lot, looking at how we can exchange information. And there's really a, an, been an, uh, an interesting appetite and also a series of challenges. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's never, it's never easy um, in these situations. But it's, it's been uh, a very complex and fascinating experience to sort of think about how do we bring, it's easy to say, let's bring the best of, of cultures together. But as you and I have talked about over, over the years, John, um, culture is not something that you can just sort of 
flip a switch and it's going to be changed overnight. Uh, hmm. It's a it's a it's it's a sort of a, a set of reinforcing um, experiences. Uh, it's it's a framework really in which um, managers leaders will sort of provide information and employees experience and live a culture through those exchanges with their leaders, with the technology with, that they use, with decision-making, all of those things. So it's back to anthropology after all, isn't it? it um, 100%. <laughs> it really is. The participant observer is, is alive and, and, and well right now. So from, I, I'm going to put my money on Ultiquo as the uh, new brand name. <laughs> Um, well, I, I hope not, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I will be the one vote for Altico. Um, so you're you are will, a fierce. Say, Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I have to just say one thing. So, so ultimate ultimate employees are known as Alti peeps, and Chronos um, employees uh, call themselves Chronites. And so there was some interesting sort of um, uh, blending that happened with, uh, will, we, will we be creeps now? And uh, so I'm really also voting against that one as a, as a new identity for, for the employees of the joint company. I don't know. That's pretty good. Um, we're, we're, we really <laughs> take care that. of our creeps. That's, that's, that's an inclusive <laughs> message if, if there ever was one. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the next thing is you've, you've, you've been, You've been volcanic in the quality and depth of your um, advocacy for diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, those sorts of issues. How's yeah. that going? You know, so you're, you're pulled out of, uh, out of, I don't know, I don't know, you probably need to tell me about your job, but it seems to me that you're a little further away from that. And so I'm curious about how that plays in this role, which appears to be more technical. So, so it's, it's interesting, John, because I actually think that I'm now in a position to do more to influence not just the makeup of our teams and do and, and diversity, equity, belonging, uh, and in, as part of the, the makeup of our company and as sort of just a, a topic that needs to be um, brought to the forefront of, of our conversations, even more so now, although it's always been important, let's be real, just because of what's happened in the past few months after George Floyd's death, to, to me, that um, only surfaced how important um, all of this has been for so long, and, and it's really not been, we haven't been as honest as we need to be in, in that arena. Um, but I actually think that now, um, with more of a, a, rather than looking to shape the discussion in the world of HR, technology, business, now it's also adding to the ability now to truly reshape the solutions that we bring to the market. And that's something that can only happen. I think about the 76% of leaders in HR, if we take that, that as, as, as one example, are women. Um, there's there's a, a large number of women of color who are leading uh, the, the HR or the diversity role within organizations. And yet, if you look at the makeup of the people who create the products that serve that audience or that population, 
it's largely white male from a development standpoint. So I feel that now I have even more of an opportunity to say, you know what, our, our, we are going to be very, very serious about the pipeline and changing the conversation about who comes in and who's influencing the, the, the development and checking the development, shaping the development of our, of our solutions um, that we're bringing to market. And it's already starting to, to bear fruit, quite frankly. Um, so so that, that volcanic or, or fierce uh, advocacy, uh, I, I feel like it's more, it's more than talking and shaping a conversation now. It's about we are going to ensure and are already ensuring that we are challenging um, and bringing in different voices in the creation of solutions. And I think that's probably the most, uh, the most significant. As, as, as you know, Ultimate has had a, a pretty good balance from a management perspective of women. Um, not enough people of color, though, without a doubt. And so um, part of the shift for me uh, was also getting out of the way of some of my colleagues, some of the people who were on my team, so that their voices could be raised at a, at a new level as well. So it's being very intentional um, about hiring decisions, promotion decisions. Uh, and, and, and when you go from having a team of about um, you know, 20 to having a team of, of more than 300, uh, it, you actually can have a greater impact in some of those decisions. So as I understand it, you are in charge of both the technical function at Ultimate Software and the product function at, at Ultimate Software. I so don't the, the think... Product and... yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Nope. No, no, please. Cor correct me. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the product and strategy. What we've done, though, is I have a counterpart um, from an engineering, uh, on the engineering standpoint, and we actually manage jointly. Um, what's unique, though, is I don't believe there are a lot of product and engineering uh, senior executives that are both women um, leading a large, a large product portfolio. And so my counterpart is, uh, is Jess Keeney, and she's responsible um, directly. But we, we actually have joint meetings. Uh, our leadership meetings are also joint meetings. We, we really don't manage the team separately. We are paired and our leaders are paired from a product and technology standpoint. And we wanted to create this much more collaborative approach to building new solutions, to um, executing the, the vision that we have, because it's, it's one thing to say, here's what we're going to do from a product standpoint. Um, we're going to develop the strategy and throw it over the fence. One of the things we didn't want to do, we wanted the, the, the ownership and the discussion to be a constant conversation. And so we've completely restructured uh, to, to, to meet that goal. That's awesome. I, I don't know anywhere else where there's that kind of female leadership in the technical functions in HR tech. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's amazing. And I wonder... I wonder if you're thinking about it. It's it's got to be sort of a weird thing to think about, but your competitors could learn from you, um, and there's this sense that the industry could learn from you, and you must have conflicting emotions about that, right? Because because you've got this secret powerhouse now, and if everybody else copies it, you lose the the uh, corporate uh, differentiation from it so so how do you think about grooming growing encouraging the development of other female talent in similar roles 
Yeah, I think about it all the time, and um, and part of that uh, plays out daily with the decisions of who we've brought together and how how we blend um, the the strengths under the team. I will say that what it requires is a setting aside of ego uh, that is hard to find in 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 this world. Quite honestly, uh, people get married to their ideas. Uh, thinking, oh, no, I, I got to get this over. You're going to take care of doing this. How can you not understand um, how important this is? And it does take this, this, this setting aside of ego to say, look, what I believe is not the most important thing. I want to know what you believe. And then having that conversation together uh, and, and being okay with disagreement, but then eventually respecting each other enough to move forward. So, when I think about how, um, and, and I, I will say it is interesting because to me it feels like a very natural way to work. I know that for my, my counterpart, um, by the way, who, who was an attorney, believe it or not, and is now leading a, a group. So together we have 1,300 people on the team, engineers, product, business analysts, et cetera. And when you think about that, um, that, that the, the, the vast number of people on the team were always um, we've worked at it over the past few months, and we know that the, the collaborative approach is, is not natural, and actually we feel ourselves at times being pulled back. Well, don't you think, why is engineering versus product not there? We're one, so I don't know why you're bringing that up. Uh, and so it takes this kind of constant checking. So when, when looking at um, how do we share that message um, how do we shape that? It has everything to do with modeling that behavior so that when you have a, a man and woman pair um, in engineering and technology, and by the way, it's not only um, male in engineering and, and, um, and, and women on the product side of things. We have a really good balance there. It's, it's modeling that behavior and then describing how important it is to set aside one's own, um, one's own firmly held belief for the for the, the really the benefit of 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 a, of a greater population, and that's that's not easily done really. And I, I think that uh, a lot of a lot of organizations can learn from that because you when you actually put aside ego and you think about okay, how are we going to make this happen in a better way? It's really what the job of HR needs to be anyhow. So if we're going to be, if we can't model that in our own organization, uh, then I think it's, it's, it's going to be really difficult to create solutions that will help other organizations get there. That's awesome. So I'm going to switch gears on you. I, I have been okay. following the evolution of your framework for thinking about people at work. And, and my question mm -hmm. for it is, primitive because I don't really understand what you're doing, but I, I recall the last time we spoke that you're really excited about this framework. So tell me some about it. Yeah, so, so one of the things, and I think it's, it's actually the, the, the pandemic and, and the, 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 the social um, justice sort of reigniting of the social justice has only put a, a, a brighter light, shined a brighter light on the need for a framework that really thinks differently about how people, the, people's lives and their work truly intersect. Um, I think the whole idea of work-life balance is, is, a, is a fallacy. And so 
working with, with some of my colleagues, after, actually Dr. Jarrett Conrad and, and I had together worked on this framework um, about a year ago. We called it the employee continuum of needs at the time and then really shifted to think, you know what this is really about? This is about how people, life and work, um, how those things actually intersect, um, how they meld. Because again, I, I, th I think there is no balance. And so the idea of a life work journey um, it's not, it's not just the employee journey, it's one's life and work together. And, and the idea is that there are sort of six stages um, and, and individuals will revisit these stages either, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown of the different stages. The, the first is, is being at risk. Uh, and being at risk can happen at the beginning of one's career, it can happen um, at the end of one's career, it can happen in the middle of one's, of one's working life, essentially. Um, and it can happen when something dreadful happens at home or a change happens um, within someone's life. And these all have impacts on our ability to work and even what we can take on in the workplace. And so there's at risk. Once you move from being at risk, where you're really more focused on, on just surviving and getting paid and making sure there's some form of continuity, you go into security. Once you're in security, you can start thinking about, okay, maybe I'm willing to take a risk and go into a new area, explore something new. That's when you go into the growth phase. Some people may stay in security and be totally happy in that area, and they'll skip going for growth and, 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 and perhaps taking on a, a leadership role. But in these first three phases, you're really not ready for leadership when you're at risk, security, or even in growth. You may take that challenge, but once you've accepted a challenge and you succeed in it, you end up sort of in this area. And what's interesting is most HR professionals um, that you'll find at conferences that we talk to on a regular basis are in this phase of self-realization. You're okay with yourself. Once you are self-realized, essentially, then you can think about, how am I going to influence? And this doesn't have to do with management. But when you think about, you start turning your gaze outward at how can I influence others? And then the final stage, which is generally not addressed either in technology or even in the whole uh, life work uh, or, or, or work-life balance and even employee life cycle, is the notion of legacy. Uh, and, and what's interesting is I, I have a son who just graduated from college, and I was talking to him about this, and he said, Mom, I felt like I was in legacy in my last year. I was trying to share how I had built a network before graduating from college. And I said, you were in legacy, and that's absolutely appropriate. So we re revisit these stages. It's not a simple cycle, even though we like to simplify um, uh, that, that from an imagery standpoint. It, it can be very messy, just like life is messy. And so it's the idea that it's not appropriate to have a conversation with someone who's in legacy about growth opportunities. They've moved beyond that and they don't necessarily want to unless, for example, a company is sold or merges or a global pandemic hits and all of a sudden you're back to square one, so to speak. So it's this idea that, um, that, that, that understanding where people are in their life work journey will help us better serve them. And what that translates to in, in, a, in a technology standpoint is how do we glean some of that information, whether we're asking or we can tell based on people's interactions with technology where they are and provide a better experience for those individuals in that stage. What a great scheme. I'm going to steal it. Um, <laughs> Please do. 
Yeah, I may not even. Uh, I may. I may claim it as my own. This is. This is. This is useful. This is so useful one, thinking. One thing that I, what, one thing that I, I, I think is important though, is it's 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 a it's a very useful framework to describe where people are because we, we know on a global on a global basis about eighty four percent of people are afraid that they're going to lose their job or they perceive that they're going to lose their job. So if you think of how many people are at risk and what happens to people when they're at risk is they sort of they're not going to take a lot of risks. They're not necessarily ready. To, uh, to innovate, to influence and share those ideas. And so how is it that we can move people out of that phase so that they truly can come into their own um, and, and, and are ready to, to, to innovate, to think about new ideas, to bring new things without this fear of, oh, I'm going to lose my job or I, I don't, I don't want to rock the boat necessarily. And so it's, it's, if you can imagine how shifting and understanding and helping people get to another stage and what balance you have in your own organization based on where your organization is. Are you retracting as an organization as a whole, or are you in growth mode? What are the kinds of, what's the right balance for your organization? And how can you uh, assess that? It, it could change the nature of how productive our, our organizations are. And even more important, how, how well and how healthy people feel when they're at work. This is really interesting. So I, I've, I've been, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about the sentiment analysis that's part of the uh, ultimate software product line. Yeah. And one of the questions I've been wondering about since the start of the pandemic is how it is that, that you can trust self-reporting um, in an environment where people are scared. And I think, I think that what you've just told me is how, Ultimate is going to look at the self-reported data because if you if you cross-reference an assessment of where people are with the the self-reported sentiment, you might get a different different picture. So if you're talking to the 84% of people who are scared and they say they're very engaged, right? You can factor that properly. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think it's also picking up on signals that aren't necessarily part of the obvious self-reporting, there, there are other signals that people have. How often are they going to check on, uh, on, on certain pay information? So, so there's a, a lot of sort of interaction or, or digital exhaust um, that can signal where someone is also. And, and the self-reporting then is often, and our, our goal is to be able to make that more of a validation rather than an outright how you doing? Because you know a lot of people aren't necessarily going to be um, are, are, aren't going to be uh, focused on or, or won't feel comfortable necessarily in in certain environments to be open about that. Um, that's part of the interesting uh, challenge that we're finding in terms of how how comfortable are people self-reporting or not. So there are other signals that we want to be able to look at, and even things such as understanding. Okay, how would you craft your life work? In, in, in the coming months. Um, has anything changed in your life? Obviously, for most of us, a lot has changed in the, in the past few months. So one sort of the tip of the spear that we think about is how can one craft? You talk a lot about career crafting, but if you think about life work crafting, then you're bringing this, this other element 
that is so crucial because today our, our, our life and our work has blended even more than it ever has in the past. Many, you know, you, you work remotely. Um, you and I actually probably most of the time, you know, work, worked on planes or, or en route to, to, a, to another location. But those are some of the things that, um, that have changed so dramatically that I, I, I think it's really important to be able to look at, um, at emotional signals, at interactional signals, and bring all of that to bear as well as self-reporting. So I have a, I have a question that, that we didn't talk about talking about, but let's, let's see how it goes. Okay. One of the okay. things I'm – one of the things I'm learning about um, diversity and inclusion is that it's often a game of manipulating self-reported data. And the, um, there's this very interesting thing. The, the percentage of the American population that self-identifies as black has remained fixed for many, many, many years, and it's simply not true. And, and the reason that I'm starting to understand is that there's no incentive for self-reporting that you're black. And smart, smart African-American parents teach their children to answer those questions with whatever gets you the best advantages, the answer you're supposed to put in those things. And so when we measure accomplishment in these areas, gender, um, ethnicity, Right. Sexual preference. Um, we we're, we're we're looking at narrow categories that people self-report for a variety of reasons, and the and the question is, how do you take those initiatives to bring equity into the workplace beyond the categorization that is compliance data into the real rich reality of what what race actually is in the workplace because because it's much larger than the categories so so are you thinking about that it's a really hard problem because you can't collect data on it no it, again we're you 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 can you cannot collect data on that one of the things that's that's I, I think that is an important aspect of that. And, and, and tell me if I'm answering the, or if I'm, I'm getting there or not. Um, so some of the initiatives that, um, that work best to create an environment in which people are more, more open to, um, whether it's self-reporting or having these honest, um, open conversations, are, are oftentimes sort of grass, grassroots, not necessarily sanctioned initiatives in which really difficult conversations are enabled and supported, um, but that grow organically and give people who are, um, who are curious to, to learn more about, uh, about what's actually happening in the workplace um, and, and what the, the lived experience of Black American workers might be, uh, or or um, LGBT employees might be, is to actually enable those conversations and then have other voices um, and, and the growth of allyship organically uh, start to make changes happen. Uh, you know, I, I think about things as, as simple as changes in terminology that. Um, you wouldn't even think are, are, a, are a problem. We, we think of, you know, the, 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 the master feature, and we have white men coming <laughs> and saying, doesn't it seem like it's a, 
Doesn't it seem like a master feature is a bad idea? Absolutely. Let's change that right now. And, and so what you, you find is as those conversations happen, as those changes happen, um, it grows. There's a, a group that started uh, actually at Ultimate called um, The Color of Change, and it was a couple of people. There were five or ten people on the first phone call on a Friday at noon uh, that started talking about what it's really like. And now there are over 400 people who are engaged in this conversation. It's not organized or sanctioned by the company. It's just something that was started by some employees and the, the conversations are more honest and more real than anything I have heard anywhere. Uh, and, 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 and it's something that, that we look forward to. And, and now you say, hey, well, you should maybe check that out. You should, you should get out if you're curious. And you'll find, you know, that has, there's absolutely no, no hierarchy, uh, et cetera. And I don't know if that gets at, the, at, the, at the, the crux of what you're asking, which is how do we um, – change the, that, the, the situation that self-reporting um, is, is problematic. But is it, is it the self-reporting or is it the change that's happening within an organization that's more important? Um, this is one of those situations where the data may not be, and I know, you know you're, we all love data, but in some cases I think it's the reality um, that could actually eventually shift the data more than um, trying to look at the data to give us those answers. Yeah, I think I think it's as simple as if I'm trans and I don't want the uh, I don't want the company to know about that, then I mark myself off as something else, and the stats all change. And so, so self-reporting is suspect, but it's where all data comes from. And so, yeah, so the yeah. question is, how do you keep your eye on the ball when you know the data is wrong? And and at the very same time that you know the data is wrong, you have to report the data for a variety of reasons. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's. I, I think the only way that we can really change that is is to know and recognize the data is wrong, and not let the data dictate everything or funding for for certain things, uh, etc. So it's that recognition. And once that recognition occurs, and there are other kinds of activities that will allow for the idea that, you know what, I'm not worried about reporting this data, so it's okay. But, but again, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to be one of our, our greatest challenges, honestly, is what are, what are the right signals that we can pick up that aren't invasive, that aren't problematic, um, that will give us more information than, than just the data, that will enrich the data, I guess. It's, it's not an easy an, one, though. You're right. <laughs> no, no, but, no, but what meant to be an easy one? This is, this is. I'm, I'm interested in getting to the meat of the problem rather than reporting that we solved it. <laughs> and, I agree. I agree. And, and that's, yeah. that's hard to get across someplace, particularly when you build software that allows people to report that they solved it. Yes, absolutely. It's not sitting back and saying, "Okay, we got it. Move on," because that's never the case. That's right. That's right. So, so we're running running towards the end of this. Um, what else is going on that, that 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 I haven't asked you about? I know you're busy, and and there's all sorts of stuff. So, so what else is out there? When when you when you say what's what's out there, what are some of the things that uh, that that are that are keeping things interesting, challenging, etc. in the in the world of of, of um, in the world we live in, essentially, or, or yeah, specifically, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so I, you know, what, one of the things that, John, you and I have talked a little bit about is that um, you know, the whole notion or idea that um, that that in that, that this this change that we're going through that we may go back sort of to where we were before. Um, I, I really think, and and I think you you agree as well um, that that there are some fundamental changes that have occurred um, that. I believe will reshape the workplace more than anyone is, uh, and, I, and I say workplace or even just the, this whole idea of of life work, how we connect with people, etc. Um, you and I have talked about fatigue associated with being on screen all the time, uh, those kinds of things. But I, I think that we are just at the cusp of understanding or even being able to picture or visualize how different life will be. Um, in the coming years. And, and I think that poses a, a whole set of really fascinating but also uh, interesting challenges when it comes to the role of technology, the role of HR. We know that HR leaders have been sort of propelled in to, to the forefront of being the, 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 the communication arm, uh, uh, the, the connection point, whether you have furloughed employees or not. Um, and and I, I really think we... Um, we've paid lip service to rethinking, reimagining uh, what kind of technology is really going to serve uh, the, the, the workplace, the employee, the leader, the manager, whoever it is. Uh, and and I, I think we're, we're starting to get uh, a potentially a sense of that, but I, I feel like we're re, there, there's too much recycling of old ideas, and there's still a little bit of a fear to say, you know what? What we've done in the past, this transactional stuff, just it just doesn't matter anymore. Um, and it's a big risk <laughs> uh, to, to do that. But I think that's where uh, I think I think in the next year or so there will be a, a, a renaissance of completely new ways of thinking about how we serve. And I do think that there's going to be this bite size or micro innovation, micro changes that we um, are going to be experiencing that will sort of plug into the, the, the more traditional frameworks until we can really get to a, a completely new way of, of designing solutions for people um, and serving them at work. And this idea of serving and connection um, have not really been well thought through um, in, in the past, I think. I think I think you're right. the The way that I'm thinking about it is that HR is in the process of becoming the safety, health, and ethics department, and and responsible for the health, safety, and ethics of the individual and the organization. And that means we're going into a time where the old model, where HR was where you turned for firm answers to questions, yeah. isn't going to work because aren't answers to questions. Instead, HR is going to be where you turn to bet, to get better questions. And I, I, absolutely. And it's, and it's, it's going to be that, that interesting space um, that has, it's really uncharted territory, even for the, for, for HR, but it could finally be the answer, I think, to uh, HR taking it, its, its place. Because you're right, it's health, safety, ethics, but it's also motivation and, and things like engagement that 
in a remote setting are just that much more of an of of a of an of an interesting challenge that people don't think enough about. So I'd put those things under the category of health. A, yeah, yeah. a, a, a healthy workforce is engaged. Yeah, um, you're right. Very true. Um, so, so thanks for doing this. I always love getting to spend some time with you. We, we <laughs> should start our, our regular calls back up now that things are plateauing a little bit. Uh, Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on, 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 uh, on the show again. Yeah, thanks, Cecile. Um, you've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Cecile Alper-Larue, who is the Director of Product Innovation at Ultimate Software. Thanks for tuning in, and we will talk to you again next week. Have a great day. Bye-bye now. What's the best number to call you at? 954. Hang on. I I acted like I had a piece of paper. So 954. (laughs) 629. Mm -hmm. 2843. I'll call you right back. Okay. Talk to you. Bye.